1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, again, 1 Timothy is, is a book of instruction. There's a lot there. Paul is, is instructing a young pastor named Timothy. And uh, just, just to give you a, a little bit of an overview of, of the chapter before we kind of get into it, verses 1 and 2 speaks about over instruction. He's continuing this instruction. Verses 1 and 2 um, of chapter six, uh, Paul instructs Timothy regarding ministry uh, and witnessing that slaves had to have with their masters. Okay. Uh, and their witness of Christ in those circumstances, verses three through 10, Paul instructs Timothy about false teaching uh, that godliness is a means of gain and the blessing of contentment that results from godliness. And so those two opposing views there, um, verses 11 through 16, Timothy is charged to fight the good fight, uh, and to pursue godliness. And then in verses 17 through 19, Paul gives instruction for the rich in this age. And in verse 20 through 21, Paul exhorts Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him. And then Paul picks back up in second Timothy with some more things that he has to reach out. And so there's a lot really of instruction here in second Timothy. And I probably, should have cut last week's message in half, but I'm going to do that this week. So we'll go through the first 10 verses. Now we'll pick up the rest uh, when we get to it. Okay. So with that, let's ask the Lord for his leading and blessing this morning as we begin first Timothy chapter six, Lord, we love you so much. And we ask that, um, that love would translate into obedience and, and godliness and honoring you in wherever you've placed us. And so lead us Lord this morning, guide us, teach us, and Lord, may your spirit rule in our hearts. Open us up to the deception we've been, uh, we've, we've kind of bit onto. Maybe these, the realities that we now live in that are fortified lies that the enemies put up. And help us to see what your gospel is truly saying, Lord, and, and to live according to that narrow path. In the name of Jesus, amen. So first Timothy six begins in verses one and two. He's addressing slaves here. He says, let all who are under the yoke of a, as a bond servant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teachings may not be reviled. And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good services are believers and beloved. And so in these first two verses here, uh, Paul is, has instruction for slaves that he become believers in the city of Ephesus. And really this is for all over the place. Now we should know that Paul is not affirming slavery here. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, Hey, go slavery. Yay. That's not it. But rather he's addressing the reality of the slavery of slavery in the old world. It was just ingrained in every single aspect of life. That's what was going on. And so at the time there were slaves everywhere and he's really addressing believing slaves who had become believers. that are part of the church. Now, now how do they glorify God as they're living as slaves in this fallen world? What do they do now? How do they live? And so Paul in verse one, he says the big idea here says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teachings may not be reviled. And that's the main point that's guiding what Paul's talking about in slavery, about slavery here as slaves. He's saying the point is, is, is that Slaves were to act and to live in such a way that the name of God and the teachings of Christ wouldn't be reviled. 
Does that make sense? In other words, as a slave, you could live in a certain way where people go, oh, they're saying they're a Christian. They don't match up with what we know they teach. Does that make sense? Can I get an amen from a baby? Yeah. I just give it an amen. So in other words, slaves had a calling. Listen, slaves had a calling to be a witness of Jesus Christ. That's crazy, huh? Now, it's important for us living in the U.S. in 2021 to remember that slavery was ingrained in the ancient world. It's a way of life until relatively recently. And obviously we know about all the things going on in the world today. But slaves or servants were the general labor force. It was the term used and also the method used for general labor in the world up until recently. It's pretty much how it worked from the most menial tasks were done by slaves. Even to the management of large situations were done by slaves or servants, the interchangeable word in, in scripture. Now we see examples of this echoed in scripture. If you remember back to the old Testament, remember Joshua, he was sold into slavery unjustly by his brothers and what Joseph, thank you for connect for, did I even write? I wrote Joseph. It's so funny. I get Moses and Noah mixed up. Anybody else? <laughs> no matter how long I've been with the Lord, it's still this. Okay. Joseph. See, you guys know your word. That's awesome. But Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? And what happened? What happened in this slavery? He was put in charge of, of Potiphar's house. And then when he got unjustly kicked out of Potiphar's house, he got put in jail and then he was put in charge of the jail and eventually he became second in command of all of Egypt. He's no longer slave, but even as a slave, he had, there were different ranks and responsibilities and roles and he had great power even within being a slave there. And so we see examples of that in the old Testament. We saw the Hebrews were the slave labor force for Egypt for, for a long time, for 400 years, almost 400 years. And so the slaves basically worked uh, for wealthy landowners in different capacities. And there were different ways people became slaves. Some became slaves through war. You conquered someone and they became your property. That's just the way it went. Some by willingly offering themselves as slaves. Listen, the world doesn't have all the social safety nets that we have in America. Like in the old world, if you didn't have work, you died. Your family died. It was a cruel place and still is a cruel place. And so what had happened is people would see someone with uh, resources and wealth and the slaves were working there. And they said, listen, we're going to give my life up in my family's life. We'll work for you. Will you take care of us and all that stuff? And so they would willingly go work for these people. They would have a place to eat. They have food and all that stuff. So people would willingly give up their freedom in order to go work as just or as unjust as that may be. That was the system. Some became slaves because of their debts or crimes, uh, kind of the equivalent of American indentured servants back in our history. And so, uh, and some were born into slavery. Some never had a choice. They were just sons or daughters of slaves. And therefore they were slaves of the property of their master. And so there were slaves all over the place in the ancient world. It was a reality of life. And so within a church at that time, you had slaves who had come to faith in Jesus Christ our brothers and sisters, so to speak, say we pull this church back 2000 years ago. We're in Ephesus. I'm definitely not preaching. You've got some awesome people like Paul or Timothy, whoever else is in there, but there'd be slaves among you. 
Tons of slaves among the church, all of different ranks, some freeborn, uh, I mean, some who willingly gave themselves in, some who were captured by war, tons of different circumstances. They all came to Christ and they became children. And so within the church, they had slaves who had come to faith and, and just like husbands and wives and children and uh, everybody else, elders and widows, they needed instruction in godliness in the circumstances they're, they're in. Now, what do I do? I'm now a Christian. I'm now a slave. This is my lot in life. What do I do? And Paul's main point is in the circumstance you find yourself in glorify God, glorify God. And so when they came together in the church, it was really interesting because, because you can imagine the dynamics that were in the church. Could you imagine you had a slave who was a believer and then also their master who was a believer all in the same church. So when they came to church, we're all equals. But when they left, they took on their roles in the workforce that they were bound to. And so those are interesting dynamics. And so in, the, in Paul's thinking of all this, he's thinking about slaves in, with believing masters. He's thinking about slaves with unbelieving masters. And in other uh, letters, he's thinking about masters with who were believers and how they were to treat their, their workforce, their slaves and all this type of stuff. You can imagine there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. And if you read the book of the, of the books in the new Testament, like particularly like Philemon in the new Testament, how many of you read the book of Philemon? Interesting book. Read it. Uh, it's about a runaway slave named Onesimus, right? Uh, who, while on the run, he actually ran into Paul. <laughs> and when you run into Paul, you get saved. That's usually what <laughs> I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are the odds there? He goes in the safe. And so Paul is writing back to his master. He's writing back to Philemon saying, Hey, this guy became a brother. He ran into me. He was running away from you, but he ran into me. He's now a brother in the Lord. By the way, whatever he owes you put on my account. Cause you owe me your life. <laughs> so Paul really goes about, it. he says, maybe it was just for this reason that he became a brother that he ran away so that he could be returned to you. And he comes back to him. So there's just this dynamic that's happening in the body where there are there's slavery happening. And it's affecting every relationship. I would read a Philemon if you, if, if you could. And so slavery was deeply ingrained there. And it was, there were very complicated relational dynamics, but, and so how is one who is a slave either by war or willingly, or because they, uh, because they were bored into it or they're paying off debts or whatever it was, how do they glorify God in the position they were in now as a believer? And Paul says in verse one, let all who are under a yoke of bond servants, that is a slave, uh, regard their own masters as what worthy of all honor. That's what he says, worthy of all honor. And so Paul says that they were to regard their masters worthy of honor. Guess what that word honor is the same as honor widows, honor elders, ascribe worth to. In other words, to extend a special grace towards. Does that sound a little bit backwards to you of what the world's telling you to do to the oppressor? Yeah, the kingdom is upside down, is it not? Honor your master is what he's saying. Esteem them. In other words, give them the respect that their position deserves. Don't undermine them. It is so difficult to look at these passages as not being an American, isn't it? Because slavery is repulsive and we all know this. 
But when it's in a reality, when difficult times come to you and you're stuck in the situation you're in with no way out, how do you act? Well, give honor, Paul says. Give honor. That's what he's saying. And this was because he says, because basically this is the first verse one. Paul has this in mind because there's non-believing masters that you are under right now. There's people who don't know the Lord uh, that are your masters. And when they're looking at your life, when they know you're a Christian, when they look at the teachings of Christ, don't give them cause to revile God, his name. Don't give them cause to reject the gospel. Don't give them cause to reject the teachings of Christ because of, of who you are and how you're acting in the circumstances you're in. Because guess what? As those nine believing masters were right there, they had a witness of Jesus Christ under their nose day after day, month after month, year after year. And either that believing slave was a witness of Jesus and his teachings and how they lived and the attitude they did it with, or they were a cause for one to revile Christ. And quite often people reject Christ, not necessarily because they go, Oh, well, teachings of Christ. I sound pretty cool. You know, love your neighbor. No, it's the Christians part. Now, Paul really pushes this home in other places. He deals with wives and and husbands and their mutual submission and children obeying parents, like in Ephesians five and and Ephesians six and Ephesians six, five, he starts speaking to bond servants because that was part of daily life, those relationships. And he says there in verses five through eight, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bond servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that, and this is the knowing that while you're under this submission to this authority, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free, God is going to repay you for your obedience. God is watching as you serve as unto him, he will repay you. And if you continue, Paul speaks to believers who were masters as well. He speaks to the believing master. He says in verse six, uh, sorry, chapter six, verse nine of Ephesians masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master is yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Yikes. You better treat them (laughs) well, believing masters. If you're in a position of authority in the fallen system you're in, you better do that. Stop your threatening. So their work as a slave, as as menial and as mundane or as important in management or whatever it was that they were, 
they were to be a witness for Christ in their circumstance. And they would be rewarded by Christ himself. Let me say that the modern equivalent of all of this is the employer employee relationship. You got to see it. How many of you gotten job from poor people? Yeah. Usually it's the people who have material possessions that provide jobs for people who don't have, right? It's okay to say yes. Yes. That's the way it works. And praise God for jobs. Amen. Praise God for those who actually take initiative and go invest and risk everything and, and do all the, the heavy lifting, all that stuff. And, you know, you know, down with socialist weirdness, you know, not that there isn't greed and capitalism. I get that as well, but I mean, gosh, praise Thank God for your boss today. Amen. That you have a means to go to work and to provide. Anyways, but brothers and sisters, whether you're working for minimum wage or you're managing the multitudes now more than ever, it seems you are a witness of the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords in your work. You're a witness. Your work is your witness. Do you know that? We always go, I I don't evangelize. You know, I I don't know how to share my faith. You are doing that every day when you clock in, when you're working on people, you are witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our work is our witness. Now this doesn't mean, well, in in our witness, we got to ask ourselves, do uh, you know, we are to do our work as unto the Lord, not as unto man, Colossians three twenty three, And we are to honor our kind and loving heavenly master by honoring our earthly master, so to speak. I'm using this terminology. You can fill in the pr- politically correct words, but you get the idea, right? Our employers, we honor them. Now this does not mean that you honor them above God. This does not mean that you violate your conscience. I've been in jobs before where they ask you to do shady stuff or to lie or to move things around or to shave things or go to meetings in, in places that you don't agree with. No, the answer is no. I honor Christ. You know, I mean, we've got a lot of those situations going on now. We don't go against God to honor men. That's a principle. But on the flip side, do all that you're asked within honoring the Lord, do all that you're asked. And I would say, not only do all your, that you're asked, do more, be a servant of all in ways that bring glory and honor to him. Amen. Amen. The Lord will give you wisdom in that. Amen. Ask for wisdom. This doesn't mean you need to sacrifice your family and on the altar of work and all that stuff. That's another idol, but it does mean Look for opportunities to glorify God. Use it as an opportunity for your life to preach the gospel, even when not using words. Amen. Paul says there in verse two, those who have believing masters 
must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who are who benefit by their good service are believers in the beloved. Now, verse one deals with the unbelieving master. Honor them. But what if your master is a brother? Oh, we can slide now. It's cool. He's got to treat me like a brother. He can't get on me. See right here. Paul said, you can't get on me. You see how we could take advantage of one another like that? How many of you go to Christians for discounts? Oh gosh, you're poking at the wrong bear. You know what I mean? Like the Christian business, all the Christian business. Oh, Hey brother. And you drop the brother word or whatever it is. And (laughs) you see the little fish logo. And all of a sudden, where's my discount? You know, we're all wherever. How about you pay a little bit more for that service? How about you bless? Now we got a Christian employer work all the harder. That's weird, huh? Why? Because they're brothers. This is our home. This is our house. These are our people. We bless. It's better to give than it is to receive. Amen. Yeah, it says there. Don't take advantage of them. Don't disrespect them by slacking or taking advantage of their bond in Christ. Because they're a brother. We're the household of God. Love and serve one another. That's what we do. Don't. Don't try to get a discount as much as bless them. Now, if they want to give you a discount, go for it, right? And by the way, as as a slave served a believing master, and that believing master was blessed, and they were profited, who benefits? Who benefits? Everybody. Why? Because what does God command the rich to do in this age? Be generous. Take care, give as we're going to read, which Paul follows up with two times here in the next 10, 10 verses. And so we all benefit. There's so much there. I would encourage you to read Ephesians six, five through nine. If you're taking notes, Ephesians six, five through nine, Colossians three, 22 through 25 and the letter of Philemon and other places. But look, look at where God has placed you in your work, uh, whether you're home or retired or whatever you're doing. Um, Look at it as an opportunity to testify of his name, to testify of his name. Amen. And, and let your, your life match up with the teachings. Amen. In your attitude and your conversations behind your employer's back. I mean, you guys know what goes on in a workplace about your employers. So you got a nasty boss. Don't be a part of that. Only bless them. So what if they're nasty, pray for them, be a blessing to them. Work all the harder for them. Keep coals on them. (laughs) That they might come to the conviction. Same principle of unbelieving spouses, all that kind of stuff. But obviously don't go against what the Lord says. Don't do shady stuff. But do that in your love and your sacrifice. Amen. So um, I just want, I wrote this down. Brothers and sisters, the world is not coming to church. But the church is coming to the world through you and your godly witness in your circumstances. So you're, you have an awesome, you have an awesome opportunity to impact darkness by your witness. Now, Paul says at the end of verse two, teach and urge these things. He says, after he says all that, we're only in verse two, he says, teach and urge these things. Timothy was to make sure that the church knew the importance of that, of your godliness is your witness in the world. Okay. 
So that's what we did here. Now in verse three, Paul moves on to those who would go against what Paul was saying. And so there was always opposition to sound doctrine. What was being taught actually the, the counter doctrine, the false teachers that are coming to church instead of them teaching us to be godly into, into line up with Christ likeness and to be unified in the truth. They were playing upon your dissatisfaction, your discontentment. That's what they were doing. This is what false teachers do. They get you to play on what you want. Oh, why Paul, why didn't you just teach to tear down the system? Come on, Paul, it's corrupt. You know, there's a moral aspect to that. Tear it down. No, Paul says, no, that's not your place. That's the Lord's place to tear it down. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not yours. Your job is to love and to follow me right now, right? And so Paul is going to address those who teach something different. Verse three, if anyone teaches different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so Paul straight out says that the one who would go against that teaching and the others that he's already been talking about that there's a couple of things going on with them. First of all, check it out. Firstly, they disagree with Jesus taught. You are disagreeing with Jesus. Number two, secondly, they are disagreeing with the teachings according to godliness. This would be probably the apostles doctrine or just scripture in general. And thirdly, Paul says, this is the reason why it's because they're puffed up with conceit. Literally there, that word conceit is full of smoke. They're full of hot air. That's what that means. They're blowing smoke. That's what's going on. They're the ones who are opposing this. They're full of no substance. That's what's going on. And they don't understand anything. That's what he's saying. They don't understand anything because all these teachings are in accordance with godliness. Um, they, uh, they line us up with, with following Christ in the way of Christ likeness. These false teachers don't have the aim of lining us up with Christ likeness, following Jesus. That's not it. They want you to follow you. That's what they want. They're teaching you that your identity is the most important thing in the world. As long as I get a dollar of it, they'll tickle your ears. They will tell you what you want you want you to hear. And it's the sway of the world. It's the power of the world. It's everything that's sweeping over the world. Christ likeness is contrary to that. Doesn't say submit to your boss and, and pray for them and work hard for them. And don't give any reason to give any trouble. It says, man, you better buck that system because you are being disrespected. Of course we're being disrespected. We're Christians. Christ was disrespected. We don't return evil for evil. We return good for evil. We leave judgment into the hands of God and he will judge. You see, all this other teaching, it amounts to idolatry. And the teachings of Christ amount, they require faith. That's what happens there. So the false teachers, they don't, they don't have the aim of godliness. They don't teach people how to love and obey Jesus. They'll put spiritual spins and spiritualism all over it, but that's not the aim. They don't teach people how to love and obey Jesus to the glory of the father. Rather verse four, these teachers have an 
unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, the dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and con- constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved in truth, uh, deprived in truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There's a lot there. Paul's got some super packed sentences here, but the aim isn't godliness. The aim is gain. Do a lot of the teachers that are out there and you got to judge me before the word of God. Is there aim that you would have gain physical, relational, emotional, financial gain? Is that what they're appealing to you on? Ask those things. What's the aim? And they do this through this dissatisfaction. And, and this is evident because they aren't just teaching God's word. If they did like Paul does here in Timothy, they, instead they have an, an unhealthy, healthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. And so they're obsessed with questioning and speculation and theorizing and fighting over the meaning of words. And Paul has in mind here, what he's in thinking of is some called Gnosticism. And he's going to go back into it. We'll come back to it. But the idea is they're constantly questioning stuff. They're not just simply reading it, the plain meaning of it and obeying it. Instead, they're theorizing all these reasons why it doesn't mean what it says. And it actually tells me, well, really what it is, is it says I can do what I want. That's ultimately what it says. It doesn't really mean one man, one woman. What it means is me. Love. My definition of love, not God's definition of love. Forget about that. This is about me. Don't you want to hear that? Don't you want to hear that your life can be about the pursuit of money? And so the same thing is going on today with you got Gnostic teachers like Richard Rohr and all these people I've mentioned before that just twist scripture, Justin Lee regarding being gay and being a Christian will sit there and tell you why the Bible says you can, you can do all that stuff. I'm not judging this. I'm telling you that that's what they're doing and they're twisting it because you read the scripture and it's clear on what it says. And then they, they, they put the pseudo Christianity, the pseudo spiritualism over just enough. So everybody just kind of bites and goes, well, I'm spiritual. Because see, what's really happening is a sword is coming to people's hearts when they read the word of God. God is calling them, come to me or go to the world. It's one or the other. You can't have both. You've got to die and lose yourself or you you can just have the world. Because I won't have half of you. I want all of you. That's it. It's a sharp sword. And what people go is, no, I want to have both. I want to have both. I want to have whatever I want and go wherever I want. And then also have God. And so they mess up grace. They mess up love. They mess up judgment. They mess up all these things. He's really clear about the scary stuff, folks. It's scary stuff. And what they're teaching 
What that teaching produced in Paul's day and in ours is it produced envy and division and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction. Their teacher, their teachings didn't result in unity into the truth. You see, we unify under truth. Amen, church. Amen. And in the love of the spirit, it was quite opposite. And the people who were susceptible to this, all of them, they were depraved in mind. He says they were depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They had a depraved mind. If you read Romans one, it talks about that. that's often the result of the judgment of God. We have a depraved society where we don't honor God as creator. And so therefore God gives us over to a reprobate mind, a depraved mind. And so we start doing what we ought not to do. And what we know naturally is God given ordained things. We warp and we twist because we've given away the natural creator of all things. And God just gives us over to this and gives us over to this and give this over to this. And so we make decisions on crazy levels. So it's like, yeah, let's spend $15 trillion in a year. Can you spend $15 trillion or let's just say, can you spend $50,000 right now? Like who, you know, just irrational thinking goes around and I don't care what it's for. It's like, we've lost our minds in so many areas all the way around. We are ripe. We are ripe as a society with a reprobate mind, with a fallen mind to tear on to all this stuff and to have spiritual people sit there and, and, and feed you all this nonsense about what you want to be. And so it's important for us as the people of God to be discerning and to go to the word of God and not just to a man, but to the word of God for, for what he says is truth. And these people, Paul says, were deprived as, as well of truth. In other words, the false teachers were taking the truth out of their, out of their lap. Just like the seeds that got spread on the, uh, you know, um, among the, <laughs> help me everybody, the field. Yeah. The hearts of people. I took it out of my mind. These uh, <laughs> reached in and grabbed it and pulled it out and replaced it with nonsense. It's demonic. And so too, it's like so many of us, you know, we have the word of God in front of us, but we start going off on these YouTube trails, not saying you can't go YouTube, but I mean, our minds are shaped by just weird stuff that we don't even have a context to. We don't even have an accountability to in a relationship within a body about, you know what I mean? And it can get dangerous. And so just be careful. But they were looking at Jesus now as a means of fleshly gain, Man, I'm going to follow Jesus and he's going to make my life what I want it to be in the end. How many of you who've walked with Christ realize (laughs) price is right. You lose. No, that's not what it's about. It's about his kingdom. It's about the spirit, not the flesh. Boy, that's difficult. But Paul says, Paul counters this idea about, Godliness being a means of things in verse six, boy, we're not getting far. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take, we can't take anything out of the world. Paul doesn't want Timothy to think that godliness doesn't have any gain. He says, it's just not worldly gain. It's not the way that, that they're packaging it up for you to be. There's so much gain in it because here's the gain. 
is that you can't take anything with you. All the things they're pitching at you, it's all going down. This whole place is gone. Your clothes, your glasses, your body, your bones, everything, it's going away. You're not bringing anything, you know? Can't you never see a U-Haul following a Hearst? <laughs> That's old. Come on, guys. Still works. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of this world. The Egyptians tried it, and then guess what? We found it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your stuff. I understand the sentiment. But godliness. That's going with you. It's eternal. Stuff doesn't require faith. Godliness requires faith. The pursuit of stuff is caused by desires for this world. I'm not, you have to qualify a lot of this stuff. Okay. Cause stuff isn't bad. It's the love of stuff. The love of junk. Yeah. Conviction. <laughs> Red shed, call it dread shed. Never mind. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We see the, the false teachers, they were, they were rousing up discontentment and stirring up people towards fleshly desires. But Paul says, godliness is going to lead contentment. That is that Christ is truly going to give you sufficiency in all things. It, it, the other time it's used that words, that word, uh, contentment in the new Testament. You want to write this down. Second Corinthians nine, eight, second Corinthians nine, eight, the word contentment. It's the other place it's used in the new Testament just here. And in second Corinthians nine, eight, which says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, that is contentment in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. Listen, as you pursue the kingdom, God will provide what you need at all times. That's his promise. Seek first the kingdom. God is the believer's source for life. He is our contentment. Unlike the false teachers, the godliness that Paul taught resulted in contentment in God and his provision. Verse eight. But if we have food and clothing with this, we'll be content. Two words for you. Black Friday. <laughs> Two more words for you. Cyber Monday. <laughs> the warning here is about to get into that he's about to get into is the church's self-indulgent desires that we pursue because of our discontentment, man. I was in, uh, Oh, Joe was there. Hey Joe, I'm calling you out, man. Yeah. I was in sportsman's warehouse yesterday. It's like, Oh, just I need, and I want and have to have, and why don't I, you know, just started, you know, pulls on it's, I'm, it's, it's not just me, right? This didn't and, and to be aware of anyone pushing you those doctrines under the flag of spirituality is what is what Paul wants you to, to be aware of. But real quickly to be truly content with just food and clothing, Paul says, that's what he's talking about. Is that even on our radar as Americans? I don't think we understand that concept. And this is what I was praying about earlier that we have built up 
We are so engulfed in the culture we in, we can't even understand what it's like to be content with food and clothing. As an America living in 2021, this is such an archaic concept. Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Is it possible to be content with the basics? What do we possibly need for Christmas? How many of you kind of like when you're younger, you excited and all that stuff and everybody gets kind of a little excited, but how many of you are, are like Christmas is such a burden for buying crud for everybody that doesn't need anything. Anybody else? That's why I, That's, well, I was thinking Learjet, but obviously you guys didn't get my text. So no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. If you get a text about Learjet, that's not me either. Okay, so. And I'm not knocking you for getting, you know, but do we put deals? Is a deal become a value in our hearts above contentment? You know what I'm saying? Just because it's on sale, do we need to get it just because it's a deal? Just because we're all prepping for ahead? Do we have to, is, you know, one of the blessings of being America is that we have so much at our disposal. It truly is a blessing. I remember flying back from the Philippines and being in the jungle in the mountains with people who really had nothing. And then, you know, I'm there for two weeks and doing all that type of stuff. And then I fly into LA as I'm flying in, into LA, they have the commercials on the back of the, you know, on the back of the, the chair in front of you. And it's just talking about Disneyland and all these places you can visit and stuff. And I'm just tripping out and I land and I get out in LAX. And for some reason it was really late at night, maybe one or two in the morning. And, uh, and so I'm driving down the freeways to go from LA to San Diego and there were, there was no traffic at one or two in the morning for some reason. I know that's weird for you, but there's traffic at one or two in the morning and it's just 16 lanes of nothing in total convenience. And I just remember sitting there just bewildered because it's like gas station, fast food, just anything you want, and, you know, and I'm so ingrained in it. You don't even think about it. Just two hours of straight, whatever you want in any direction. Yeah. I know our feathers have been ruffled a little bit lately because we don't have a couple items on the shelf. Right? Maybe that time's coming. Maybe that's time when our supply chain is a little bit kinked, but maybe something's going to kink it more. But really by historically st- historical standards as a society, we are so rich. We are so rich. I'm not talking about you know, I know there's people who are suffering. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying in general, man, the poorest among us lives like a king in some, in some situations, you know, in, in the United States. Look at the next verse. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content with just food and clothing and loving and following Jesus and trusting him for everything. That is great gain in this life. How many of you have pursued down that rabbit hole and realized at the end of it is just more want and emptiness of the bad aspect of discontentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's true life in that. And, and, and as Paul said in previous verse, we came into this world with nothing. We're leaving with nothing, but godliness and is great grain. That gate, gate, 
great gain, great gain. It translates into the next life. But those who desire to be rich, those who go after the things that can't come with them, that's what their life is about. That's their pursuit. They would be those in Paul's days who are responding to the false teachings of godliness is meant as a gain. Those who desire riches, look what happens to them in verse nine. Just pay attention. This is really important. They fall into temptation. The enemy is going to cast his bait in front of your nose. We know from James one, it says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed fishing and hunting terms lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown gives birth to death. The temptation factor goes way up when you are pursuing riches Pursuing wealth, that is your aim. And you fall into a snare, he says. That means you, that, that pursuit, it chokes the life out of you. It chokes you. It's like a trap, like an animal. You're strangled by that pursuit. Be careful on the pursuits of wealth building and temptation, even if they're under the name of Christian people. What does the scripture say about this? And because they throw a scripture that says something about money does not mean what that verse means, what that says. And Paul says what happens is they fall into many senseless and harmful desires. The pursuit of riches leads people into foolish and harmful impulses, and it plunges them into ruin and destruction. Do you see what kind of words he's using? That's what happens The end of all that pursuit isn't gain. It's what it's loss. It might be material possession, but what he's talking about is even bigger. Jesus warned in Matthew 19, 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why would you play with those odds? Does that sound like a great investment? When it's harder for a camel to go through not even a needle than it is for uh, a hard man, I mean, for a man to a rich man to go for through, you know, whatever. (sighs) It's that time of year. Fibromyalgia is killing my brain. But why does this happen? Why is this going on in the hearts of those who want to become rich? Why? We're almost there. Verse 10 for the love of the money is what? It's the root of all kinds of evil. Is money the evil? Is evil the evil? (laughs) That's the love of money. That's the crux of the pursuit of riches. It's a love. The love of junk. The love of stuff. What is going on there is that there's a competing love, the love of money. Conversely, you could say that the love of God is the roots of all kind of goodness and blessing. It's the root of blessing. You love God and man, it is great gain, (laughs) right? Everybody your life, when you love God and you follow him, you make him the center of your life. There is great gain in your life. Godly gain. But conversely, you love money and you've just opened yourself up to all kinds of evil. Jesus taught a lot on money. One of the main teachings that Jesus had is in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said to his disciples in verse 24, no one can serve what? Two what? Two masters. There's that terminology again. 
for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one uh, to the other or despise the other. How many of you have two bosses with no clear definition of who the boss is? You love one or hate the other. Sorry about it. It's just the way it works. So the same way you can't have two masters. Guess what? You can't serve. You can't be the slave of money and be the slave of God. You can't have both. Does that make sense? The false teachers are telling you, you can have both. You can't have both. It's either him wholeheartedly or the world. That's your choice. That's the gospel. That's why the way is narrow. And that is exactly what being chosen, what is being chosen when a person desires to be rich, you choose your master and the destruction that I think Paul is speaking about in first Timothy is not only temporal, but it's eternal because at the heart of a person who is discontent and decides to pursue riches is greed, not faith. It is a love of the world and money, not God. It's the wide path, not the narrow path. If you look at this context of chapter six, as we get to the end, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to live a life of faith and trust in him, not in riches. These men had wives, they had kids, they had families, they had houses, they had responsibilities, all these things. They had the things that we had, the disciples, most of them, except for Paul Barnabas, we learn, but he was calling them to follow him, to trust him, to choose him over materialism and all that type of choosing. Now, I don't know about you, but as, as the husband of my wife and as the leader of my house, I get nervous about provision, about trusting God. Anybody else? He tells them you can only have one master. You've got to choose me. And as they chose Jesus, their natural anxiety would well up in them. And either they would go pursue money for that provision or they would go to God for a position, that position, that uh, provision. Now we already know that Paul said, man, if you don't provide from your family, you're worse than non-believers. So this is not a don't work statement. We are called to work, right? Amen. We're called to work. That's a clear design by God. We, we know that. No, this is not some call not to work. No, this is a rejection of idolatry of work (laughs) and riches because your life isn't stuff. Your life is Christ. Is it really? It's okay to work. It's okay to work hard. It's okay to provide. Don't make that your life. Don't make your house, your lot, your life, make Christ your life and everything's in its right place. And so Jesus follows up after telling them God that you cannot serve God in money and says to them in Matthew six twenty five, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Listen, church, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on is not life more than food. And the body more than clothing. If it says to be content with food and clothing, this isn't life more than those things. Underline that, make a note this season. Isn't it more than the pursuit and accumulation of things? That's what riches means more than you need. Verse 26, look at the birds of the field of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father, what does he do? 
He feeds the birds. Are you not of more value than they, church, blood-bought? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan, disciples of Jesus? And why are you anxious about clothing? Because, man, we're following you, Lord. We're not following after money. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O of little what faith trust God for your provision church. That's the issue. Do you trust God? Therefore, do not be anxious for anything saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Why? Verse 32 for the, who does that? For the Gentiles seek after that Gentiles, the non-believers seek after that stuff. That's their life, their flow. They go after riches. That's their source. That's what they go after. That's their pursuit. God knows what we need. He says, and your father, heavenly father knows what you need. All of them. He knows what you need. He even knows what you don't know. You need, isn't that awesome? And gosh, you know what? He's such a good father. He even gives you what you don't need. He blesses you. He knows when you need time off and to get away or whatever it is. He knows these things and he knows how to do it better than you can do it. Amen. Amen. So what's my role in all this? What's your role in all this? If I'm not going to make my life about the pursuit of riches, I'm still going to work and do all the things God's called me to. But if my life isn't the pursuit of riches and I'm, what am I supposed to do? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be what added unto you. Put God first church. Godliness is the means of great gain. He'll take care of all those things. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day and its own trouble. The world's obsessed with becoming rich, but you can seek after God. You don't have to be more. You don't have to have more than one master because you can't. Paul says the same and warns Timothy to warn the church here in first Timothy six. And he says to Timothy back in chapter six, verse 10, he just said that when he says there, he says, it's through these cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and appeared pierced themselves with many pains. We'll learn about Demas in the next chapter and in second Timothy chapter four, verse 10 nine and 10. He says, do your best to come to me, Timothy for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Someone left and followed after those things. They love the present world. So brothers and sisters, uh, take stock of where you are this season. Amen. The opportunities you have, not only in the positions God placed you in to glorify him, but also in the pursuit of your life. You only get one shot at this. Seek first the kingdom at all costs. Be content with less. See what God does in your heart. Let this teaching impact our holidays. Let's not go after the way of the Gentiles, right? But instead, where we'll pick up next, just reading verses 11 and 12. But as for you, O man, O woman, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, 
faith, love, peace, steadfastness, gentleness, pursue the spirit and fight the good fight of faith. Amen. Amen. May we pursue godliness in our circumstances. Father, we lift up this teaching to you and we just want to thank you for how rich and how deep it is and how convicting your spirit is. And Lord, I, I know that the enemy has definitely fortified our thinking in this nation about what success looks like and what our pursuit should be in the paths. And Lord, if, if our pursuit isn't riches, what does that mean we do with our daily life? What does it mean with our relationships? How does that impact our goals and the way we're going about things? What would it truly look like father, just to seek first the kingdom and not to have one foot in the gutter and one fist in the gold, but to follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to trust you. Lord, we, we ask for your spirit to convict us and Lord, and cause us to repent. Forgive us for our idolatry in these areas. Forgive me, Lord, and cause us to run after you wholeheartedly and away from this junk. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.